Hello, and welcome to this download from Faber and Faber. My name is George Miller, and my guest today is Stephen Armstrong, author of War PLC. The book is an astonishing, eye-opening investigation of the phenomenal rise of the new corporate mercenaries. The so-called private security contractors have mushroomed in just a few years to become a multi-billion-dollar industry. So much so that the British and U.S. efforts in Iraq and Afghanistan would quite literally grind to a halt without them. It's effectively the privatization of warfare, yet most people have no idea that it's going on. When I met Stephen, he told me that he became interested in this subject while preparing for an interview with Tim Spicer, CEO of Aegis, one of the biggest private security contractors in the business. I was writing features for an editor at the Guardian, a woman called Jeanine Gibson, and she sent me to interview Lieutenant Colonel Tim Spicer, who had been involved with the company Sandline and was now involved with a company called Aegis. And Spicer had a huge echo in the headlines because the Sandline affair had been so significant. It was when his company, Sandline, which uh, he'd set up with uh, a man called Tony Buckingham and also Simon Mann, who now languishes in an equatorial Guinea prison for an old-school mercenary attempt. Sandline had been involved in helping the government of Sierra Leone, which was involved in a civil war. There was a nasty war going on. The UN had imposed an embargo, which some people interpreted as being anything to do with Sierra Leone, and some people interpreted as being the, the baddies, if you like. And so Sandline were helping the officially recognised government, and they were spotted having their helicopter refuelled by a Royal Navy ship, and there was a big kerfuffle, arms to Africa affair. And that sort of put paid to Sandline in a, in a sense. It was really the last thing they did, and they, they, they sort of trickled on for a little while. But um, what, what was interesting was that, that Tim Spicer had kept a paper record of everything he'd done, which really wasn't what was supposed to happen, because in the old days, these companies, and they've existed really since the 1960s, these tiny little companies, used to act as plausible deniability operators for the Foreign Office. What they weren't supposed to do when caught was say, well, look, the Foreign Office said we could do it, here's the phone calls, and this is what he did. And then the government began looking at them. 2002 published a green paper saying, yeah, this might actually work for us, you never know. And then the Iraq war broke out, by which point... Tim Spicer was poised and won a huge contract from the Pentagon. Now, I'd got the background of the Sandline affair. I hadn't really picked up on Aegis or what he was up to. But during research for the interview, it became clear to me, and this would have only been a couple of years ago, 2005, that these private security companies had something like twenty to 25,000 men on the ground in Iraq, and that I had not heard about it at all. I'd just been, you look through... There's a tiny, tiny bit of coverage. I mean, really, hardly anything. One or two stories about them being killed and so forth. And talking to him, his ideas, it became clear, were very much about the private sector's involvement in, 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 in war. My personal opinion of Tim Spicer is that he's a very interesting... I, he, he's lambasted generally, but I think he's a very interesting operator. I think he's a, one of the people in the book... Christopher Kinsey describes him as the Richard Branson of the private security sector, and I think that's a very good description. Certainly Aegis, in the way it's set up, is a very, very proper company, and I believe Sandline was. There are other companies in this area who are far less well set up and get up to all sorts. It's significant, of course, that Aegis has never been named in a, in a uh, shooting incident. So. And as you begin to look into it, you start to see how many people, how large the contracts, how huge the numbers, the fact that some of these companies have helicopters, have aeroplanes, they have armoured vehicles, they have 
they're using you know mortars and rocket propelled grenades and 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 you realize that, th- that these are huge huge concerns and particularly um, in America, companies like Blackwater are setting up additional companies, one called Greystone, which is designed to be a peacekeeping force, intervene in areas like Darfur, or get involved in espionage, spying on companies and protesters. And from it seems that from 2003 to 2007, we had, the world had created a private army, hundreds of thousands of men strong, earning hundreds of millions of dollars, and very few people had <laughs> written anything about it. So I was talking to uh, Faber and Faber about it. And just as we were talking, Blackwater men opened fire on Iraqi civilians in Nisor Square in Baghdad, and they killed 17 and wounded many others. And Walter Donahue at Faber said, right, OK, we've got, to, we've got to get this out quickly because this is, this is happening you know, now. And so we did move as quickly as we could and get as much stuff in. The more I looked into it, writing at the book level the more I realised that everything I'd even known before at the proposal was nothing. I hadn't even <laughs> touched the surface. Yeah, I mean, one of the questions I was going to ask you was to what extent you were surprised by what you found, to what extent you kind of had an inkling before you set out what was going on and to what extent your eyes were sort of opened by the, the process of researching it. I think that by the time I got to proposal stage, I was aware that there were former SAS and former paratroopers and former US Navy SEALs and former Green Berets operating as bodyguards and guards on the ground in Iraq and in Afghanistan. And I knew, had some sense of what they did out there. I didn't realise quite how massive and regular what they called the contacts were, you know, the battles, and how that these guys would be involved in gun battles every day. Uh, And that some of these guys would be involved in organisations. One guy I um, interviewed extensively, who I gave in the book the name Mark Britton, it's not his real name, at one point, had been he'd been a Royal Marine, and he hadn't even been corporal when he left. And he joined a private security company and was given, almost overnight, the responsibility of a major. He was given 160 men. He built a fortified encampment to help a, a building project. And that he was able to buy an enormous arsenal of weapons. And that he would engage... At one point, he engaged in a, in a full-scale firefight with, with insurgents. And then I also didn't realise the strange macabre humour that surrounded this because he would also employ lots of Iraqi locals to help him out in various things driving, a few security guards and so forth and after this enormous firefight one of his Iraqi employees came up to him and said you know the, uh, the insurgents have put a, a $5,000 price tag on your head and he said why is that? and they said well they thought you overreacted a bit yesterday <laughs> so it's you know it genuinely is the kind of thing that if you put it down as fiction no one would believe it anyway so but then as you look a bit further, you find the espionage thing was something that I had no idea. That Speaking to one guy at a company called Diligence, he was explaining that probably 25% of the people involved in the Heathrow climate change camp, he estimated, would be private spies employed by corporations to keep tabs on what the movement was doing. And whilst I was researching the book, the assistant commissioner of the Metropolitan Police at that time, Tarek Kafour, who was in charge of the Olympics spoke at the British Association of Private Security Companies conference and the, and the BASPC are sort of the lobbying body of, of these companies which was set up in 2006 really in an attempt to manage what regulation might or might not come and he spoke at their conference really outlined the situation in London in 2012 Olympics, Queen's Diamond Jubilee, Wimbledon they've got the Notting Hill Carnival all of these events running concurrently huge, huge events with heads of state and they had to prepare for ter- multiple terrorist attacks across the country. 
And he basically said, we haven't got the men. And I could see myself part privatising policing. And again, this seemed to me that the ideas, you know, this to get unnecessarily philosophical, but the ideas of what is a state, a state is the thing that has a monopoly on the use of force. And that's the contract we make with our state, our government. We say, we agree not to defend ourselves violently. We agree not to fight each other. We agree that you will, you know, the rule of law. And we give you our powers to defend ourselves in exchange for you exercising it responsibly. And it seemed to me that there were, there were ideas going on in governments all around the world which involved them effectively letting go of that monopoly without consulting us. And many people listening to this and reading your book may find themselves thinking, these contracts are worth millions, sometimes billions of dollars in total. Why doesn't the army or the government simply pay more to their regular forces to carry out these tasks you know the thought of the army being guarded by a private security firm seems in some ways absurd so can you explain how, how it comes about that there is this need to pay outside contractors to fulfill these tasks in part i think it's historical the standing armies of the 20th century were designed to deal with things like the cold war and when the cold war faded in the early 90s basically the armies didn't need to have as many men and there's there still is no real significant threat to the British homeland. There's no power out there as there was in the 80s with tanks lined up ready to attack. You know, the, the need for a huge standing army is not there. It's piecemeal. You'd need, you know, look, we're pulling out of Iraq now. So therefore things will change in terms of the balance of troops. So, so the army is now scaled down to about 70,000 men. So the, the size of the British army reduced, the size of the American army, the size of all these armies reduced. And also we moved away from our involvement in, for example, Africa. We, we, you know, the, the West stopped propping up half its African states and the East stopped propping up its African states. And that's why a lot of Africa went absolutely off in the 90s. Um, and so we didn't really have the strength or the power to intervene necessarily. Now, as time goes on and the country becomes wealthier, the army has found it harder and harder to maintain even that very limited 70,000 strength. In fact, the army is currently 10% under strength. And of the troops that it does have, 10% of them are foreign nationals. So the British army is recruiting in um, Jamaica, it's recruiting in uh, Fiji, it's recruiting all around the world, you know, in countries where the salary of a British soldier is handsome. Whereas in the UK, the salary of a British soldier is considerably worse than a plumber, and you're going to be going out to Afghanistan and Iraq. So it's proving increasingly difficult to even maintain a small-scale army. So if that's the case, the army are thinking, why, why not just invest all our money in the area that counts, the assault combat brigades? You know, we could, we could contract out the cooking, save money. It's the 80s, contract out, opt out, philosophy, taken to the moon. OK, we could contract out the time of the truck driving. Um, actually, you know what? We could contract out guarding the, the trucks themselves. I mean, we don't need to put soldiers there. So th- what's happening is the military is moving into making only the essential elements of war fighting, the convoys with weapons in, the man in the trenches, as being, because, as, as a historian, uh, again, Christopher Kinsey says, the point is a combat infantry regiment is a non-profit, is not profitable. <laughs> but everything else could be. So these static guards, private sector offers them cheaper. And uh, that's, that's, the, that's the answer, really. It's a money saver. But as you, you said earlier about the philosophical issue, the philosophical issue, I suppose, in this case is, you know, the army just becomes a shell organisation, really drawing in all sorts of expertise from elsewhere. And yet it's got this, you know, it's not just like catering, it's also got this lethal force as part of its brief. 
Yes, and in, intriguingly, there was a book written in the in the mid nineties um, called "The Shield of Achilles" in uh, the United States, which it, which set this out as being a philosophical position for the West to take, and it, it made the argument that there have been different kinds of states. And it talks about the uh, kingly state, the princely state, the imperial state, the democratic state. And what he says, the author, is that the democratic state is very, very good at certain things. For instance, it's very good at fighting a defensive war. If it's, a, if it's assailed, it almost always triumphs because the citizens are involved. They'll fight for their homes and the people they love. But they expect something in return. So when they come home from the Second World War, they want a welfare state. It's an expensive business to set, send out a democratic army, if you like. And, it, and it's a complex political business. So he argues that now what we've moved into is the market state. And what the market state does is it purchases what it perceives to be appropriate at the time of need. So right now, we need a certain number of soldiers. Well, it will take us... How long will it take to recruit, train and equip an infantry battalion? Recruitment might take six months and training might take a year. And then that's a year and a half, maybe two years before you can put those men in the field. Well, why not buy them now? And they would go out to the market, buy the soldiers. So he, he, he felt that it should go even further, that, that actually that's, that's the future of the Western military, is a classic Roman Empire you know, style, uh, all empire, you know, from the Egyptians to the Greeks to the Roman style, purchase your force and, and, and use it. Of course, history tells us that those empires, empires that did employ mercenaries tended to find themselves sacked and destroyed by the very mercenaries they employed. But he, he, he doesn't really cover that ground. He thinks it smooths over that a little. One of the astonishing things in a book which is full of astonishing things, you quote Donald Rumsfeld on the 10th of September 2001, where he says the big question was the privatization of America's wars the day before the planes crash into the Twin Towers. That was already on the agenda. How, how to, you know, so he, he portrays the Pentagon like, a, like an obstacle, really, to the, the pursuit of America's objectives. The Donald Rumsfeld speech is very, very interesting to read because he begins by describing this enemy. And it sounds like, a, and particularly when you read that he gave it on the 10th of September, you, you, you begin thinking, well, maybe he knew, maybe he knew what was coming, you know. But actually what he's talking about is the Pentagon bureaucracy. And he comes from that neocon school which really started looking at war after the first Gulf War. In the first Gulf War, there was one private operator in the US military for every nine soldiers. So that there would be people manning missiles, maybe. If McDonnell Douglas produces a brand new missile, they'll provide a couple of engineers to help. You know, After that war, Rumsfeld and Cheney began a process whereby they would opt out a lot of this by something called the log cap program which was really about getting civilian companies in to run a lot of in this case construction repair not war fighting at all um, elements of, of the u.s military and that process had, had accelerated to such an extent that by the time the u.s army went into iraq in 2003 there were nine contractors for every one soldier so they felt they'd succeeded and as we can see from the situation in iraq oh how they succeeded because this whole, this ideological perception of how the neocon movement, their idea of privatising the Pentagon was also tied up with their ideas about the market state, about uh, liberation of the Middle East and democracy and all this kind of thing. And I think that, you know, it's clear now, I mean, when, when people in Britain looked at the war in Iraq, I think that people talked a lot about war for oil and that, you know, it was all a cynical, manipulative attempt to gain the Iraqi oil fields and who knows, that may well have been true. But certainly within the neocon movement, 
there was a pure ideological burning feeling that if they went into Iraq and liberated it, democracy would flourish overnight, which is why when Paul Bremer, who is sent over by the White House to take over in, in, in Iraq, arrives, the first thing he does in this war-torn, insecure country is dismiss the army with Order 1, debathification of the army. Everybody goes home with armfuls of weapons. They go home with their Kalashnikovs, with their rocket launchers. Obviously, instant insurgency. Then he has to deal with that chaos, and the way he deals with that chaos is by hauling in the private security companies. He, he hires Blackwater to be his own personal security detail in a multi-million dollar contract. Before Bremer arrived, his predecessor, who'd only been there, I think, a couple of months, used a small unit of Texas National Guardsmen to handle his security as he moved around Iraq. He was fine. Bremer was so hated and there were so many prices on his head that he had to have this huge security detail of planes and armoured cars all provided by the private sector and so as, as Bremer reached the end of his, his tenure he did what he thought would be the right thing for the uh, contractors and he passed the Order 17 very notorious Order 17 which said that anyone who works for the coalition in any capacity cannot be subject to Iraqi law or Iraqi courts which effectively means if they kill an Iraqi nothing can be done so that's how you set up this situation where there are loads of guns, loads of insurgents and loads of private soldiers who can shoot to kill. Let me ask you now a little bit about the psychology of the men who are on the ground, the, the, the mercenaries or the private security operatives. You mentioned Mark Britton, your interviewee earlier, and at one point in the book he compares himself and his fellow fighters to, I think, a Ferrari who's in a 20-mile-an-hour zone. And that seemed to be a very potent image of what is potentially pent up in, in these men. I mean, what kind of view did you form of their, of their psychology? I think that there are, there are probably three different kinds of private security contractor on the ground at the moment, particularly in Iraq and Afghanistan. I mean, it's worth saying that we're talking... In Iraq and Afghanistan, we're talking about the big government contracts in war zones. This... This 2003 Iraq invasion and all the stuff we talked about accelerated massively the growth of this sector, but it had been growing very rapidly prior to that. And one of the areas of growth had been private companies like oil conglomerates, engineering companies, who would be working in insecure countries and would use them to, to guard their wells, their drilling rigs, all that kind of thing. However, once it became a war-fighting situation, obviously they needed a lot more people, huge numbers. And I think that there were, there were, there were three three types of volunteer. The first, if you like, was what you find a lot in the Blackwater camp, which is ex-soldiers or people with some kind of military background who are, who are literally doing it for God and for the country. There, there is an in, intense patriotism, and they believe that, you know, I mean, in, in Blackwater, they salute the American flag. They believe they're part of the US war fighting machine. In Britain, I think there are, there are two... There, 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 we're less like that. And that splits into two different kinds. There's the Mark Britton-style character. Mark Britton had come back from Iraq where he'd fought as a Marine, but actually he hadn't really fought. He, all that had happened is there'd he'd been, he'd been blue on blue, which is you know friendly fire incidents. And he'd been trained to the peak of physical fitness and the peak of, of, of war fighting as an as infantry soldier. And he really, you know, he was there, ready to go. And then they sent him home. And he felt it was something that he hadn't finished. And there are a few, quite a few of them out there, people, soldiers who trained to fight and had never fought and went out there, went back out there to, to experience it. I don't think that they want to kill. I think they want to experience combat. They want to know if they could have stood it. And then there's the other group. And in a way, these are the ones who I think 
are the biggest victims from the West. There's no doubt that the Iraqi in, civ- uh, civilians gunned down and the Afghan civilians gunned down are the, are the biggest victims. But in the West, there are these guys who have been in the army for you know, 15 to 20 years. They joined up from the depths of Glasgow because they had very poor education and this was the only option they really had to get a trade, to learn a skill. And, you know, they, they've been, as I say, doing these tours of Afghanistan and Iraq on less than two grand a month. And they're going to get, when they reach the end of their tenure, where they're going to be about 45, 50, they'll get four and a half weeks vocational training and then they'll get booted out. And suddenly they'll lose that camaraderie and they'll probably end up as truck drivers because really the vocational training won't help at all. And they suddenly find that if they want to, someone will give them 10,000 a month tax-free for doing what they've been doing already. And so really, the third group are people who are doing it to pay off their mortgage. What happens to a lot of these guys is that the companies themselves are not equipped in the same way as the military are to deal with them being revved up as Ferraris. So they go out there, they have a huge contact. There's no one to talk them down. There's no one to give them counselling. There's no one to look after them if they're wounded. There's no one to look after their families if they're killed. The companies have some... Some of them have an insurance policy which is uh, mandatory under American law, but it's almost impossible for a British wounded guy to get compensation from this this insurance thing, which is called the Defence Bases Act. And they find that their girlfriends aren't included and that non-residents have problems. So they come back and, and find that it's all ended, not only is it all ended horribly, but there's no one there to help them pick up the pieces. One guy in the book, ex-SAS guy, came home with very severe brain damage after his Land Rover rolled over on his head. And when he arrived at the RAF base, he found that the company hadn't even sent a taxi to take him home, and he had to ring his girlfriend to come and get him. And then, since then, he hasn't been paid a penny. So he's been living on state benefits with severe brain damage. And and because we have no idea how many people are really out there, and because there's no official record of how many of them are killed, wounded, injured, and that's part of the advantage for a government, you know, it's... vanishing casualties no one knows about the cost we don't know how many people there are in this country with that how many brain damaged how many limbless how many amputees are there eking out their existence on on, on, you know, on the dole and with, with no aftercare now of course a lot of people say well they took the money and you can see that point but I think interestingly the other thing that I found about the book was that as you look into it and as you unpeel it as you, as you unpeel it your, my moral position became more and more fuzzy, more complicated. And I, and I could see the both sides of certain arguments and, and I sort of lost my way on these guys. I mean, it, it seemed to me that they deserved sympathy, support and pity. And that, yeah, okay, they took the money, but terrible things happened to them. And are they to blame? We, as a society, were buying houses, spending money, getting, you know, da, 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 and we didn't care. You know, when the soldiers came back and they marched through the streets, a famous footage recently of a regiment returning from Iraq and walking through the streets of the town, and no one watched, no one cared. So we kind of turned our back on them. And they, with their patriotism, felt that they were serving queen and country, and then they found the country wasn't that interested and they weren't that well looked after. It's very clear from the book that private security contractors are not going to go away. I was really struck by the degree to which they were woven in, especially at the Pentagon. There's lots of revolving door people having seats on boards, and, you know, they're, they're not going to disappear. <coughs> so I wondered what, what you thought the future held in terms of regulation. Do you, think, do you think they will be kind of brought in and become more accountable, more controlled, or do you think it's out of control now and it's, it's going to go its own way? 
I mean, it is out of control, and if you like, we're at, a, we're at a frozen moment, really, which has been a very long frozen moment. It's been frozen since 1997 in the Sandline Affair, when the, the British government began to try to get a grip on what this new industry was and what to do about it. And now, over 10 years later, they still haven't really come up with anything. There's no plans to regulate afoot. There's no real discussion going on anywhere in the government about this. I'm not sure that's sinister, actually. I think that in part it's because Gordon Brown is conducting a domestic agenda because, you know, that's the thing that's going to keep, that's hopefully going to try and claw back his poll collapse. So if he was to take time to look at this thing, I think that because this isn't an issue, really, for lots of the British public, how is that going to win votes? How is this regulation going to win votes? It would take an incident of the size of the Nissau Square incident involving a large British company being splashed over the front pages of the newspapers, I think, before this was the kind of thing that the government would begin to consider. But at the moment, it is just not worth their time. Now, there are campaigners like War and Want who are doing everything they can to try and bring it um, onto the agenda. Having said that, though, I mean, and again, this is where you start to get into areas where you question your own morality. The position that you held at the beginning of writing the book or that I held at the beginning of writing the book, changed slightly. And I remember I was talking to Tim Spicer, and he was saying, he pitched this position, well, look, let's suppose Zimbabwe, Darfur. Look what happened in Rwanda. You know, the, the United Nations negotiated for six months and debated for six months. They didn't even send them in a peacekeeping force. And while they were talking, women were having children ripped from their bellies by rebels. Same thing in Sierra Leone, all over the place. Now, in the 1990s, Executive Outcomes and Sandline both brought peace, firstly to Angola and secondly to Sierra Leone. And Tim Spicer says, so, look at Darfur, look at what's happening there. It's a balance of moralities. Which is worse, a private company or dead babies? He said, you don't want us there? That's fine, we can go home. But we could, he believes, field a battalion of peacekeepers like that. If the EU wanted us to, and the EU can't put an army into the field, isn't it? But if the EU mandated us, he said, we could stop the civil war in Darfur. But is the pact, you look away and we'll clear it up, there's none of the transparency and the accountability that we would expect from a, a regular army? I mean, that is the issue at the moment, is that there is no, there's not even the, 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 the groundwork for accountability. I mean, as you, as you say, if the British army goes into a battlefield, there are lawyers there, for one, who are interpreting human rights law and who are looking at... Uh, there are no lawyers involved when a private company goes in. And because... There is these private companies are completely legal. There's nothing; they're not doing anything illegal. But there's no framework to to, to limit or to allow or to coordinate what what they are allowed to do and what they're not allowed to do. At the moment they're operating in relatively lawless countries and doing exactly what they want. Now there have, there are various arguments about what, how this regulation should be applied. War on Want, the charity, would like licenses to be issued on a case by case basis, so that if Aegis is going to win a contract with the Pentagon, it needs to also apply for a license for that job. The companies themselves are talking about possibly a license for a company, that you'd be a licensed private security company, and there'd be rules that you'd have to uh, stick to to keep your license. And if you didn't have a license, you wouldn't be allowed to operate. At the moment, that doesn't apply. Interestingly, it does apply, for instance, to a doorman in Warrington or a doorman in Dover or a doorman in London. Bouncers have to have, they have to be, have licenses issued by the local police force. So what we're talking about here is security guards looking after a nightclub require a greater level at the moment of regulatory conformity than ex-SAS guys with AK-47s on the ground 
you know, around the world. And that's clearly a ridiculous situation, and it can't go on. You mentioned the fact that this issue is really scarcely on the domestic agenda, and you mentioned your own moral sort of fuzziness happening as you research it. I just wondered what you hoped this book would achieve. What would you regard as a good result from this book being published? I don't have any particularly high-held ideas about the power that I or a book would have in terms of changing anything particularly. I think that, that if you're going to if a law was going to be introduced, it would it would take the hard work of people like Warren Want, the people who are on the ground and working on it every single day. You know, having written this book, I'm then not going to be on the phone every day to my MP. So in, in a way, anything I say will be vaguely hypocritical because it's couched in those terms. You know, I'm not writing letters to my MP about this, I'll be honest with you. So it's, it's a little bit, little bit cynical to say, this is what I demand. I suppose what I hope is that I knew nothing about this. And when, for instance, I've done things like Start the Week, You've found people on that program who are very, very informed journalists who also have not had this brought to their attention. And you just think that it's going on. It's going on in our name. You know, people in Iraq and Afghanistan see these companies as being British companies acting on behalf of the British. There's even bits in the book where the Metropolitan Police Officer talks about these guys perhaps part policing the streets, in which case this would be, they'll be policing us. They'll be, they'll be exerting force on us. And we don't know anything about what's going on as, a, as an average punter. We haven't even begun to look at it. So the best you can hope for is that people read it and think this is something that we ought to find out about. We ought to pursue this and maybe we, as a country, ought to talk about this a bit before we carry on doing it, before we have a British Nissan Square, before British ex-soldiers machine gun innocent civilians in our name.